Blog Talk Radio.
We'll be talking about that in just a few minutes, and we'll have, uh, as our guest tonight, we'll have Caleb Causey from Lone Star Medics. Uh, this is a, a premier uh, medical and first aid instruction uh, company here in Texas. They're a fantastic bunch of guys. Uh, let's talk real quickly about some of the uh, some of the stuff that's going on right now. We know that uh, ISIS uh, has been on a run to on on killing the journalists, beheading them on TV. Now I gotta I, I try and keep away from from becoming uh, a full fledged uh, tinfoil hat person, but. I got to tell you that watching those videos of the journalists being beheaded really caused me to wonder if it was if it was true or not, and and I don't know uh, I don't know how to uh, how to see if it is true because I don't know that I trust anybody to to tell me that it's true or not. Uh, it has to be a couple of the most bizarre uh, videos of beheadings that I've ever seen. Uh, first off, there is uh, there, there were none of the uh, the normally dozens of either on camera or off camera uh, folks jumping in to add their uh, 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 their their chance and uh, and 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 yells along with uh, the guy who is cutting off the head. Normally, there's dozens of folks, you know, yelling uh, uh at the same time that this is going on. And in this case, there wasn't. In both of those cases. It was done on a completely generic uh, desert scene. Uh, I'm sure that maybe some of that could be that the uh, the terrorists didn't want there to be anything in the background, the position of the sun, buildings, terrain features, anything that could possibly uh, tell anybody watching it where it was occurring. It also lends itself to the fact that it could be occurring anywhere. Uh, it could have been occurring in uh, in New Mexico. It could have been occurring in in California or even uh, here in Texas uh, with some of the uh, with some of the area. So so I don't know. I mean I don't know. They stopped the beheading uh, at uh, now in the first one. Of course, it looked like he's sawed into his neck pretty good, but I didn't see a drop of blood. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to belittle this that these guys actually got killed, and, and God bless them, and keep them, and and damn these men for, for doing that. <clears throat> it just seems, the whole setup just seems too weird to me. Uh, it just struck me as such a uh, it's such a slick thing, I and mean, it was like something that we would do. Uh, something that uh, you know, uh, CBS would do. So, 
So I don't know. And to go along with this, we have uh, just this, uh, what was it, two days ago, we had the, the vote. Or was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday, the vote, to arm the moderate rebels there uh, in order to help fight ISIS. Now, correct me if I'm not wrong. If I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, that isn't that how we got into this situation in the first place? I mean, didn't we, didn't we arm what the government uh, and uh, uh, a lot of the uh, 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 the DOD folks were claiming were the moderates who then became ISIS, along with, I was just reading another article that was showing the pictures of three of the folks that got traded for Bergdahl uh, as being three of the top commanders now in ISIS. I'm just not sure that, uh, I'm not sure we're very good at this game. I think this may be kind of a game that we may want to sit down on. This doesn't seem like something we're doing a really good job at. I'm not sure what the the answer to this is. Now there's a uh, there's a group that I saw some videos of the other day, and, uh, and I try really hard not to uh, not to go down the rabbit holes because there there are a lot of them. They're all over the internet. Uh, but there was a a organization called Storm Clouds Gathering. And uh, I thought these guys did a really good job of uh, of doing a uh, line by line A B C D E F G uh, account of how ISIS became ISIS. And there's another one on there. If you look around, there's another one that will tell you how the how we have become so wedded to the Middle East because of the whole petrodollar scheme that began uh, back in the 50s and 60s when the U.S. entered into agreements with the OPEC nations that the OPEC nations would only sell uh, their products in dollars. That means anybody who wanted to buy the, uh, the oil and stuff from OPEC would have to buy it in dollars. If they didn't have dollars, they'd have to buy dollars and use dollars to pay for their oil, and that is certainly a you know revenue generating proposition for America, as well as keeping us in the uh, uh, in the the power scheme there. And it's very uh, it's very unsettling what we have managed to to push ourselves into, as well as the situation in Ukraine and the rising situation. In China, uh, I mean, we've got the uh, the stuff going on in the Ukraine now that uh, that our government is trying to push down our throats and tell us uh, just as hard as they can that this is the Russians being the bad Russians. Now, and listen, I'm not trying to tell you that there's not a lot of bad Russians and that they they haven't been a really great bad guy you know, for the last uh, 70 years. What I'm saying is that I want you uh, to go and read for yourself what is going on instead of blindly swallowing uh, 
the information that you are being fed by mainstream media. Because what it looks like to me is that this is uh, this is a counter move, a counter attempt to try and put pressure on the Russians because of their decision to try and institute another currency uh, other than the dollar that they would be using. Same thing with China, with China buying all the gold to institute a currency backed by gold. Uh, if this were to happen, if they were to institute a, a powerful enough currency that would replace the dollar and people started jumping off the dollar, that would, for us, we would, we would, we would certainly go into a, a horrible spiral. And uh, it's something that is still a possibility. That's why I, I keep preaching on here for you to to do everything you can to make sure that you are as self-reliant as possible. I don't have any inside information that tells that, that I can tell you that something is going to happen other than I can tell you that something is going to happen because something always happens, all right? And it doesn't have to be the end of the world for it to affect you. It could be uh, a three-day snowstorm. It could be a major power outage in your area, a hurricane, a tornado. Something is going to happen because it always has, right? So that's why I keep pushing for you to become as self-reliant as possible. And I'm going to lead that directly into the tonight's subject, which is trying to ensure that you have done as much as you can uh, to prepare for any possible um, uh, first aid or medical needs for yourself and for your uh, your loved ones or, or any others, for your group, uh, for whoever, because this is another thing you can count on, is that if the, even if the end of the world never comes, uh, people are still going to get injured every single day by the tens of thousands, Right? And there's a good chance that on one of those days, one of those folks is going to be you. And in order to to give you the best possible chance of passing through this in the in the easiest fashion, you need to make sure that you have done what you can to ensure that you can be your own first responder, that you can apply the principles of first aid and the supplies uh, and be the first responder for your own injuries, if at all possible, for yourself, for your loved ones, uh, for for people you don't even know. <clears throat> so tonight we're going to talk about uh, individual first aid kits, group kits, uh, uh, bug out bag medical kits, and stuff like that. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to bring on uh, my guest, Caleb Causey. Caleb Causey is from uh, Lone Star Medics uh, here in Texas. And uh, Caleb and his crew have, have developed uh, a fantastic uh, professional company providing uh, really uh, uh, professional instructional services, uh, which he's taking uh, to everyone here in Texas. I mean, I believe he, he also uh, takes them out of state too, but he's providing a, a wonderful instructional services for first aid in, uh, uh, in combat, tactical medicine. And, and Caleb, welcome to the show. Hey, man, it's great to be on the show. Thank you all for having me out. Thank you, sir. Listen, tell us a little bit about, uh, before we get into the, the meat of the subject stuff, tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself and about how you ended up uh, running Lone Star Medics here in Texas. 
Okay, yeah. The uh, you know I've spent the past fifteen or so years as as a medic. Um, started off here, you know, in high school with the uh, Boy Scouts of America the Explorer program, uh, and riding out with MedStar out of Fort Worth. And uh, I really f- fell in love with it. The whole idea of riding an ambulance, helping people, and as cheesy and corny it may sound, I, I actually enjoyed it. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And uh, you know, the Explore program there and the people involved at MedStar, they were so awesome. They'd let us jump on the ambulance and ride all night with them and all day on the weekends. Uh, after high school, I ended up in the Army and did four years of active duty. I'd make it sound like some prison term. It wasn't like the judge gave me two choices. I, I had a choice. <laughs> but uh, I volunteered for four years of active duty as a combat medic, uh, stationed overseas, a couple deployments to the Balkans, uh, came back to the States, to Fort Polk, Louisiana. And uh, after that, I got out um, in 2002 and then uh, – Got on with the uh, fire department here locally in the Dallas-Fourth area. Spent about uh, six years there um, on the fire department, working with the fire department on the ambulance, on the fire engine, uh, the dive team a little bit, and uh, with the SWAT team, with the police department, um, on their SWAT team as their SWAT medic. Uh, Then decided to go to paramedic school uh, about five, six years ago, and came back. They decided, hey, why don't you come back and help with being an adjunct instructor, you seem like you got a good handle on this. I said, that's impossible. I just learned it. <laughs> some buddies and uh, some buddies here came back with the, some instruction, I guess, credentials, if you will, or certificates. Doesn't mean I knew how to teach yet. But uh, I took a couple of classes and uh, adult learning style, came home to the shooting range and uh, at TACPRO Shooting Center. And that's kind of my, where I started shooting, getting involved in the shooting industry, uh, doing three-gun matches and stuff. And so all the ROs. And my buddy said, hey, well, since you're a big big shot instructor, why don't you teach us some stuff? And uh, we joked about it, and so I pulled about an eight-hour class out of my hat, and they were blown away and said, you should do this full time. So here we are five years later, uh, over 20-something different courses and a handful of instructors teaching all over the U.S. Yeah, and you guys have done a great job. Uh I haven't thank taken you, thank any you. classes yet. We're working we're working to set that up with Battle Road. But I've been reading about you uh for quite a few years now and uh I've really been uh, I've really been excited to see you guys doing so well and to have such a have such a professional company and uh for you guys to be so close to me here. So uh, I've been very happy about that. And like I said, I've I've talked to Caleb about uh us setting up some training in the very near future, and we're working on that. And but tonight we're going to talk about uh, uh, we're going to talk. And let me tell you too that I really appreciate Caleb coming on the show because this was kind of last minute. I was going to I was going to do the the show tonight, and then I it, and I remembered I needed to uh, to send Caleb a message about something and. And then I said, well, maybe I can get him to come on the show and talk. And he was he was very agreeable to it. And then uh, within a couple of hours, it was all set up. We're ready to go. So I, I appreciate that, Caleb. <laughs> no, yeah, I appreciate I really uh, appreciate the kind of words, you know. Uh, we we and, definitely uh, could have made it here without the friends and helpful, a lot of help from a lot of smarter people than myself. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was yeah, very, that's when you who called, I, I said, that's who I 
I was just going to say that's 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 exactly what I would say is that's the is that's the way I, I I've gotten here is by uh, by climbing up on the backs of, of people a lot smarter than me and uh, and I certainly have appreciated uh, everyone who's been involved with uh, with helping me with helping Battle Road. So uh, with on with tonight's subject and that is the uh, individual first aid kits and. Uh, and let's just let's just talk about that first because that's really uh, if they if folks get nothing else out of tonight, I would like for them to get a a, a decent understanding of what an individual first aid kit is and what they really need to have in the kits, uh, if at all possible, for their basic kits and uh, uh, the. Uh, and the knowledge, and, the, and we can't do that tonight. But the, the knowledge, how to, the knowledge to use those products correctly. So in my kit, well, I'll just tell you first what I have in mind, so that you'll so that you'll have some place to start off. You can critique my kit, but in just in my in my individual everyday kit, and I think that for me, and I'm sure for a lot of other people, once you carry on you, and um, that's that's usually called your everyday carry. Uh, varies from day to day because you will have to uh, assess what your possible risks are during the days, and, and there's some places you can go with a bunch of stuff, and there's some places you can't. So uh, what I carry every day is, is going to depend on where I'm going and, and what I'm planning on doing. But usually, even if I'm just going uh, uh, into town uh, to get some supplies or something, I've still got uh, a full medical kit uh, in the vehicle, then if I'm if I'm going out uh, on the range somewhere or something else, I've got my individual first aid kit. And then even if I'm just uh, if I'm walking about town, I've just got a little plastic bag. It's about the size of a wallet, you know, a little zip-up bag that has uh, one of the old army uh, crushing bandages in it that they put in the old army first aid kit. And then a uh, uh, a packet of sea locks in it. And that's, well, why we why we got to call it so old, man? Well, why why, why you got to be like that? <laughs> <laughs> you kidding me? Uh, because I, I show it to people and I show it to folks and they go, "Oh, that's the old one." I'm like, well, "I don't know, man." <laughs> it was it was, really, it was really advanced when they when they issued it to me, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it, I, I, there's certainly nothing wrong with it. I mean, there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But, but that's what I that's what I'll carry during the during the day and in my my individual first aid kit that that's uh, really the one that I keep with me everywhere and I got a bunch of them because I keep them stashed and we'll talk about that too in a minute. But in the the individual first aid kit that uh, uh, that I have uh, on my rucksack and that goes with me everywhere, I'll have uh, the the basic things, which is a uh, I'll have uh, two or three of the the bandages. That's the individual uh, bandage, like we were just talking about. Then one of the new uh, compression compression bandages. One of the uh, uh, one of the new fancy tourniquets. And then uh, I'll have some band aids. I'll have some gloves. I'll have uh, the uh, uh, the hand wash stuff in there. Uh, a pair of scissors, a pair of tweezers, uh, and I think there's an EpiPen in there too. Uh, and that's 
just in the, the kit that I carry, it would either go on my bag or on my person if I were walking around. But, right, uh, right. But give us a – tell us a little bit about what you guys – because I know you guys give courses on this – about what you recommend for the individual to carry and uh, what what he, what the individual really needs to be carrying on them uh, in different situations. Sure. Well, it's it's you're kind of like, first off, you've got some stuff. You know, whether it's uh, you know outdated equipment or not, or uh, at least you have something uh, where, and that's always a positive thing. So I'll start with that as a positive. Hey, at least you've got some uh, some kit, you've got some contents, you've got you know some goodies stash in different locations and depending on what you're doing that day. And that's really uh, reverts back to people always ask in our classes or, you know, hey, well, what do I need to carry in the kit? And I, I equate it to kind of like, a, well, I, don't equate, I just say, well, the way I answer that usually is uh, I say, first off, let's look at four things. Uh, one, what is our, our mission today? And that could be broken down if you're, and I mean that, uh, you know, taking the military term out of that terminology, but but your mission, what is your, what are you doing today? Right. Are you going to be going to driving to work? Are you going to be uh, taking, you know, dropping the kids off at soccer practice? Are you going to be, uh, um, you know, going out to the shooting range? You're going to be on the range all day or, Hey, I'm just, I'm going to work. I'm going to be in the cubicle for eight hours and I'm going to drive home. Uh, so you got to look at what is your mission? If you're kicking indoors with bad guys and serving warrants all day, well then, yeah, your, your mission is a little bit different than, than mine. Uh, if you're, you know, hunting bad guys in the mountains in caves overseas, well, then, yeah, that mission's a little bit different. Uh, but the second thing, so I look at the mission, and that's going to tell me a lot about, hey, well, what is uh, the second thing? Well, that's going to tell me what kind of environment. When I say environment, meaning it sounds like mission, sounds like what am I da- what is my daily activity with mission, but my environment is, well, am I going to be on a ship? Am I going to be in the high seas? Am I going to be up at altitude where, you know, <laughs> oxygen is uh, scarce and ounces equal pain? So I got to worry about carrying a lot of weight in, at altitude. Am I uh, going to be, you know, again, your environment? Is it raining outside? Is it 30 degrees outside and 10 feet of snow, or um, is it just a typical Texas day and it's 120 degrees in the shade? Um, third thing I look at, I tell people to say, hey, how many people are you responsible, immediately responsible for, or want to be responsible for, should something happen? And uh, what I mean by that is just, hey, are we talking about when you say individual first aid kit? Well, an IFAC is what I carry on me as part of my EDC med kit is specifically just to treat me, to keep me back in the fight or keep me alive long enough until I can get to the medics or until the ambulance gets there, until I can get to my vehicle to get my bigger med kit or somebody else can. Uh, But it's my kit. It's not there. I'm not carrying that to treat other people that, hey, I look at it, and I'm an equal opportunist. Everybody here in America had the same opportunity to be trained up and carry their own gear. <laughs> Full of it. Right. But it is, it's called an individual first aid kit, not a team first aid kit. I can't be responsible for everything. Uh, then the fourth thing, what is my level of training? You know, am I a uh, cardiac surgeon? Am I a, a just jaunty citizen that took a first aid class or CPR class? Um you know, or am I a paramedic or a, you know, you know, a corpsman or a combat medic in the military? Well, then depending on what my level of training is, then I can carry a little bit different stuff. I can do a couple of different procedures um, so I can, you know, do those things. But looking at those four things really breaks it down, um, you know, and then, but yeah, I'll still answer you the question as far as, hey, what needs to be in a kit 
Um, sure, well, let's look at what, what, what kills people the first. Um, well, okay, a heart attack's number one killer in America. Uh, we can look at CDC reports and uh, their statistics, and it's heart-related disease. Okay, so heart attack. Well, what cures heart attack? Well, preventive medicine, <laughs> meaning, hey, we start eating better, taking better care of ourselves. But uh, then if that doesn't work and genetics takes over, well, then uh, automated external defibrillators and knowing CPR, uh, getting in a CPR class. You know, I'll actually promote, yes, go get a Red Cross or American Heart Association Red, uh, CPR and AED class. But uh, number two killer in America, according to CDC, is uh, blunt trauma. And that's coming from, that means people are bleeding either uh, internally or externally, but uh, usually internally, blunt trauma meaning versus penetrating trauma. Blunt trauma, think of baseball bats and steering columns, penetrating right. being knives and bullets and stuff. But uh, so we've got to control bleeding. Um, that's one thing. Uh, a lot of guys think, hey, well, I'll carry the same kit that I carry with me. we got a bunch of soldiers where guys and girls are saying, hey, well, I carry this equipment in with me in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's the exact same stuff I need here. Well, true. Um, you know, you, you bleed out, and everybody thinks, oh, well, I need to be worried about this or that. Or, you know, we, I call it boo-boo kit, and meaning my Band-Aids, Neosporin, my, you know, uh, you mentioned tweezers, stuff like that, my boo-boo stuff, my sick call stuff, or uh, for scratches and band-aids and that sort of thing, I want to keep that stuff separate than from, say, my tourniquets or my pressure dressings or my hemostatic agents, stuff like quick clot combat gauze or, um, you know, stuff that's going to stop bleeding immediately dead in its tracks if I'm bleeding. Because I'm going to, if I bleed out, I can't put the blood back in the body after it's spilled out on the ground. Um, right. And that's, that's a surefire way to, you know, <laughs> to bleed out and die. That, that's pretty bad. Um, so those are the four things well, I would say. That's just the number efficient. one. That's a, that's the number one killer, right? Isn't it exsanguination that uh, usually takes folks out? Uh, well, bleeding, yeah. Well, we don't, have, you know, as far as you know, how do we word this? We don't want to. Uh, our sure, if we were, there's no way for us to carry an aid bag or a high fact that would cure 100 percent of everything that ever happens to us. Right, um, right. In the Army, I think my aid bag, on average, rate weighed anywhere from 35 to 45 pounds. Um, but I had sick call stuff in there. I had antibiotics. I had a bunch of other stuff, um, you know, uh, and not just trauma. It wasn't trauma all the time, but with blunt trauma, we're talking about car wrecks. Um, right, if right. we're on the shooting range, well, then obviously we need to be, if we're out there spending the weekend on the range or taking a class, then, yeah, we need to be concerned about penetrating trauma and bleeding, uh, getting shot by bullets or what have you or negligent discharges, um, sure, then we need to think about where are we getting shot. Uh, that's something for, you know, the, your CHL holders. And if that's something we're talking about with EDC, ah, yeah, my hand is, hey, you need to carry a tourniquet with you. Think of your tourniquet just like you do your uh, self-defense firearm. You know, it's, well, do you want to, people say, well, this, this cute little firearm will fit in my back pocket. Well, this cute <laughs> little tourniquet <laughs> will fit in my back pocket. Well, that's, that's cute. <laughs> Um, what do you want to get in a gunfight with? The Glock 17 with 17 rounds of uh, I don't think so, <laughs> or uh, you want to get nothing against Caltech? I'm just using an example. I, I own them. Okay, I'm a fan. But are you want that little 32 Caltech in your back pocket? Um, now I'm trying to talk about caliber here, okay? But uh, which one do you want to get in a gunfight with? Well, I want the Glock. I've got 17 rounds plus mags. You know, 
Okay, well, tourniquet's the same way. You get a tourniquet that fits in your little back pocket, that may not be the best tourniquet for you. You may need a, you know, a soft T wide or a cat tourniquet, you know, something, a really solid, good tourniquet. Um, so those are, you know, overall, I'd say, yeah, look at your mission. Look at uh, your environment of that for that mission, uh, meaning, you know, temperature and weather, that sort of thing. But then also, hey, what is my level of experience and training and how many people am I responsible for? Right, and and like you said, your what your what's going to happen is going to change from day to day. It's going to be it's usually going to be different uh, almost every single day. So you're going to have to you'll the way I do it is I have just different levels of things that I that I already have set up. Because if you the harder you make it to alter things or stuff like that, then the less chance of you doing it uh so i've just uh i've just made up a bunch of different uh, sets and those go with me depending on what i'm going to do and then i've got the ones that go in my vehicle and the homes and everything else but uh and and then let me go back to something because you touched on it uh, earlier in the discussion and that was uh when you're calling it the individual first aid kit and meaning it's for the individual who's carrying it Sure, and that's sure. certainly something that, that we were always taught in the military. Uh, that was like the big no-no was never use your own stuff on somebody else because yeah, you then, then when you get hit, you got nothing to take care of yourself with. So, so Absolutely. how? Uh, yeah, and if we're, we're talking, you know, if you're worried about our family members and stuff, which of course it's it's in, it's in the front of my mind, not the back of my mind. Uh, well, then I can only carry jeans and a t-shirt, so much medical equipment. But I can, and I'm just going to advocate. I'm an advocate for training. I don't care if people to come to our classes or not, somebody else's. But just go get medical training from solid people with solid backgrounds. But uh, you know, just to, you know, I look at myself, and I was talking to a guy the other day, and he asked me. He, he stopped me in the store and he said, "Well, what do you carry on you right now?" I said, "Well, I." It sounds weird. I hiked up my pant leg. I had a um, Tech Med Solutions uh, their ankle med kit, and I said, "I've got a tourniquet. I got a soft TY tourniquet." I've got a, uh, a Russell chest seal with a one-way valve on it. I've got a quick clot hemostatic uh, agent on me. And then I've also got the, the wrap itself as a bandage. And he said, well, that's not a lot. And I said, well, it's just me and my fiance here. But because of training, I know how I can maximize even the wrappers if I need to. Um, I can, you know, because of the training, um, I can maximize and utilize some of these tools and treat, you know, maybe up to three to four people if I if I have to. You know, it's not just one person, but each individual tool. Well, maybe I can get two or three uses out of that one tool. Right, right, right. And, um, and we but, can we can we can talk about some of this too a little bit later in the in the improvised. But uh, and you've certainly touched on. I think probably the most important part of this is that that one of the very first things you should do is try and get you some training, at least the most basic training, because without that, this is you're just carrying around a bag of things. Uh, and uh, and when I first when I first started on this quest, uh, I guess about I don't know 17, 18 years ago. I mean, I started out by getting a whole bunch of gear. Uh, then I got tons of gear, uh, medical gear. And but in my 
I'm on. Now, I did have at least a basic, uh, I don't know what they call it. Now they call it like combat lifesavers. But I had the, I, I had the cross training as a combat medic. So I had at least a, a minimal amount of, of training. But in my mind, I thought, you know, I'm going to go ahead and get all this stuff because uh, in the neighborhoods and everything around here, there are, are nurses and doctors and veterinarians and, you know, everything else. But uh, but they're not going to be able to do anything if they don't have anything to do it with. So at least if I have, if I have uh, a bunch of, uh, bandages and surgical gear and, and you know, and, and sutures and on and on like that. At least I'll, if I have the stuff, and I, I was thinking at the time more of a, uh, you know, like a, either a local or, or national type man-made or natural disaster. But I said, at least we'll have the gear here, and if we can just grab somebody, even, you know, a nurse, anybody that has a, a good enough knowledge, then we can start treating people since we'll have the gear, we'll have the bandages, we'll have the hydrogen peroxide and iodine and sutures and everything else. So that was that was my thinking at the time. Since then, I've been trying to get uh, uh, more and more training and trying to stack it up and trying to, to get as much knowledge as I can because, as you said, uh, it's almost the inverse is almost true, which is if you have the if you have the skills, you can make you can make a lot of of everyday household items work. You can you. You can use a newspaper for a bandage or, you know, a saran wrap or you name it. But you got to have the skills in, under, in order to understand how to apply it. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I try to relate it back because uh, just because of the, the target audience, I guess, that seem to keep coming to our classes, uh, shooters, you know what I mean, uh, firearms enthusiasts. And, uh right. What I equate it to is, as far as your equipment is, it's I don't want people to think, oh, well, I'll go out and get this kit or get this product, and it's the I call it the overnight pill. I Meaning, I take this pill, and in the morning when I wake up, everything's better. And uh, a lot of people do that. I've been guilty of it. I'm just as guilty as like, hey, I got my new Air Jordans. Now I can dunk like like Jordan. Uh, not exactly. <laughs> Did it work for you? Because um, it didn't work for me. <laughs> I mean, I tried. I mean, I, I, you know, that, was, that was junior high. I could get away with that in junior high. Uh, now I'm tired of watching the man, you know, dribble the ball. But uh, my point is, and it's just like I said, your, your firearms. You know, we, we go out and we think, okay, I know there's uh, the cops are super busy. They're doing a, a great job, but I, they can't always be there for me when I need them that one second. So I got to start carrying concealed. And I'm going to go get, uh, you know, go get this tool, strap it to my hip, or and I, I'm good to go. And then you go and take a force-on-force force class, and you realize, whoops, I don't know anything because I haven't trained with it. I don't know how to maximize this tool, whether it's your pistol or your carbine or shotgun or whatever. Uh, you know, when it's when lives are on the line, I hate using that term, you know, oh, it's so life-threatening. I, I take life a little less serious as a medic, but... You know, we just don't go out and buy that tool and think, hey, when the moment arrives, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be perfect at it. I'm going to be the ninja. Well, now you need the training how to maximize that tool. Same thing for your medical course, right. you know. Uh, so, yeah, I'm right, always up to go and get uh, trained. Yeah, I've gotten uh, – and, and I, I, you know, I've got – I'm always curious. I'm always asking people about, uh, uh, about their preps. You know, I'm sticking my nose in there because – not because – I just want to find out what – you know what the level is of prep of you know of, of people around me and stuff like that. And I used to tell 
uh, I, I've told people a story many times is that because I was in the firearms community and uh, for so long and in and out of the firearms community and the prepping self-reliance community, <clears throat> and I would ask a lot of the folks, a lot of the shooters that would uh, attend the classes and stuff like that, I would say, well, what's your, how's your prep going? What's your, how's your plan coming? They go, and they would always tell me, well, I got a, I got my rifle and a thousand rounds for it and a pistol and I got a thousand rounds for it and I got a shotgun and about 500 rounds. And then it would just stop. You know, there's like, it's like they ran out the edge yeah, of the I go, I go, well, that's it? And they're like, uh, yeah. I go, well, what, I go, yeah, what about the rest of the stuff, you know? I mean, like you may go water. your whole life without ever shooting anybody, but, you know, you got to have a drink of water every dang day. I said, what about the rest of your prep? And a lot of times they look really confused, and then they say, well, if I need something, I'll, you know, I'll take it. And I go, well, that may not be such a good idea. What if you try to take it from some of the people who've already been in some of our classes, you know? So they may not work out so good for you. And, and that's the problem is that people don't, they're not looking at their their prep as a whole or as their training. Same thing with the medical, because I've asked people, like, well, what are you carrying in your kit? And uh, they would start showing me, and then, and, you know, there's always a craze for different things and the, uh, uh, and one of the big ones for, for quite a few years. And I think it's still, I still hear about it quite a bit. It's the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the pneumor, uh, the pneumothoracic tension, uh, the, uh, decompression needles. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, I have people showing me the needle and I say, okay, so where are you going to, if I, if you see me, if you see me start to fold up with the, you know, with the fucking chest wound, I said, where are you gonna, how are you gonna apply that on me? <laughs> where are you gonna? And, yeah, I go, where do you, where you, show me where you count down, count down the bones, and show me where you're gonna stick it in. And they start kind of fumbling around. I go, okay, listen, do me a favor. If you see me landing with a second chest wound, don't treat me because I don't want you sticking that four inch needle in my heart. And uh, so having the the gear is good, but having the train for it is better. But you you have to have at least a certain amount of stuff. And you were talking about the the tourniquet earlier, and uh-huh. really, you know, tourniquet is one of those things that they they do make those high speed low drag uh, tourniquets now that you that cost you twenty bucks a piece. But before that, people were using rope and belts and you know you name it. And they were, and it was working. So, if you have the the knowledge of what you're trying to do, you can you can get other things to fulfill that need. Uh, but you have to understand what it is you're doing, and then you have to uh, then you have to have something to do it with. I, I do have one of the high speed ones, but then I also have a a bunch of low speed ones. I've got some of the old uh, the old canvas belts that are almost like the straps, you know, that hold your sleeping bag on. Sure. That was the the old uh the old army tourniquet. And I just bought a case of like two hundred of kind of the newer ones. Uh but that was because the, the for some reason and they're all still completely vacuum sealed. But uh I don't know, apparently the military's uh, contractors uh sprayed so the wrong kind of paint or something on those metal hooks. And uh, so they're they're rusty. They've never been out of the package, right. but they're rusty. But I figured, okay, you know, for we got paid fifty cents a piece for them. But I said, uh, 
uh, they'll still work. They're still good to go. You know, you can still apply them if you need. So I hand those out to substitute classes. But uh, well, but you need to there, have. I mean, if I can mean, stop you there for just a second, it's and I don't mean this to you know, it's not a hey. Well, I'm going to pick on you for a minute. Uh, the the I don't want to say cool thing either. There's been a lot of advances in modern medicine. Um, back you know back in my day, yeah, a tourniquet was uh, last resort, right? It was uh, hey, you'll do this when it's last. Uh, if there's you tried everything else and the bleeding still goes, you use a tourniquet and uh, well, where's the tourniquet? Well, you have to improvise it. And what we started learning, uh, you know, after a dozen years on t- with two, you know, over a dozen years with two different war fronts. Uh, we've learned a lot of stuff at a great, great expense. I mean, there's a lot of empty chairs around the dining room tables in America tonight uh, because our, our fathers and mothers and our brothers and sisters and our kids uh, right. didn't make it home because improvised medicine just didn't work in a modern battlefield. You know, when, because with the sheer numbers of, of IEDs going off and uh, the, 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 the level of violence that we were encountering there, uh, provided a lot of uh, patience for us. And we had to realize as medics and uh, the doctors and everybody in the medical corps, we all had to say, wait a minute, the stuff we've been taught for 50, 60, 70 years is not working. we got to come up with something better because people are dying on us, and we've been training this way for years, so we're going to try to start doing other things. And our generation being, you know, Generation X or Y or whatever we are now, um, but uh, we said, hey, our generation is, well, yeah, it's been working for you for 30 years that way, but we're going to try doing something else because we have technology. And I tell folks all the time, it's like, guys, improvised tourniquets, if that's all you've got, fine. But believe me, I better see all your soft T-wides and your cats already used up on, that, on other patients. Because it's 2014, there is no excuse for someone not to have, you know, a soft T-wide or a cat or some tourniquet like that to that equivalent. Um, on your body, just like, you know, uh, or part of your kit. Um, yes, they're a little more expensive. They're in the range 30 to $45. Uh, but just, hey, maybe you don't go to Starbucks that week. Um, right. Because they're improvised trying to get there. They don't work. We've learned that. Uh, there's plenty of documented cases uh, where they didn't work. And guys in our troops, our guys and girls overseas were trying to figure out, hey, this is not working because, one, well, if they're bleeding out in so many minutes, so many seconds, First, if, I'm gonna, if I don't have that a good commercially made tourniquet, well, I've got to first off assemble that. I have to first off I have to find the equipment to build it. And I'm in the middle of the street in Baghdad, and it's a bad day, and I have to go and find a stick. I have to find a strap, and then I have to assemble the, the equipment. I have to assemble and build my tourniquet, apply the tourniquet, and then secure it and keep it from falling off. Right. And that takes a that takes that takes two hours. And uh, that's just, you know, and so that's why I always preach, yes, there's a time and place for improvised medicine to an extent, um, but going, just like you said, I am agreeing with you, yes, you still have to know the principles of that tourniquet, of what are we trying to accomplish here? Uh, To be able to build and improvise a tourniquet, sure. Um, And it's not a bad thing, like you've got, you know, you said you bought a whole, you know, a bunch of those tourniquets, those old school tourniquets, that's fine. Um, You've got stuff there. let me let me let me just tell you which ones these are. These are the TK4, the rugged combat tourniquets. Yeah, the TK4. Yeah, they're a piece of elastic, and they've got uh, they look right. like two shower hooks. I'm not meaning to bash yeah, TK4s or anything or anybody brands or anything. Uh, sure, if people ask, is you know, 
is it a good tournament? I, I don't agree with it. I don't think so. It's not bad. It's just, you know, there, there's right. other. These are, the, these are the ones that I give to folks who have nothing. And I go, look, here's something to start sure, your, sure. you know, to start your kit. But I also give them these sheets that show, and I show them the, uh, uh, the caddies. And I said, this is what you need. This is what you're, this is what you're going toward. But you're going to have this now. You're going to, you're going to use this until you can get to that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is something. I mean, there's, you know, uh, just like anything else, it's, uh, it's not, it's, uh, I've got it on me. It's what I've got now. Sure. And, you know, it's very gracious of you when you do that with your students and stuff, handing that, handing that equipment to make sure that they're squared away. I mean, there's not a lot of instructors, let alone people, <laughs> you know, in, 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 in this world that will do that. But so that's, I kudos to you for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, I'm not a big fan. And, there, of the and there's a lot of there's a lot of places that, like you said, that uh, I mean, certainly there are tons of places. I've, I posted a couple of photographs uh, on the radio show tonight uh, on the, the uh, show page that uh, that showed some of the uses of them, and uh, and there's certainly there's some places that that's that the. Uh, that the one that the caddy where you where you're tightening it with a uh, leveraging device that's the only thing that's really going to work because otherwise when you have a traumatic amputation uh, especially if it's uh, above the knee or something like that and you're talking about uh, you're talking about a water hose size uh, device pumping blood out of the body if if you don't stop that you only got a couple of seconds you know. And there's not Absolutely. much that will stop it, other than what you were talking about, other than the, something like the caddy. But the, but there's other uh, you know there's other things that uh, that are not quite as severe, where you can apply a tourniquet uh, even if you're not using it to completely staunch the flow of blood. You can put it on there to to slow it down a little bit in order to give the uh, uh, the blood clot and the bandage time to uh, you know to do some of their work. Uh, so sure. you, can, you know there's you can, you can, you can, you can, yeah, go ahead. And, on, and then on the flip side, they may not require a tourniquet all the time. You know, the right. past couple of years uh, that we've been teaching with Monster Medic, you know, and I've started off telling people, hey, tourniquets, 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 guys, first thing, your first line defense is any major bleeding, or I, I, at the time I'd say any bleeding, uh, to the arms and legs was a tourniquet. Put a tourniquet on. Don't wait till, till nothing else works because we don't have time for that. And, uh, you know, I explained to him why. And then we realized, well, now everybody's taking it very little, so they'll get a little cut or a little, you know, scrape on their elbow or something from proning out behind a rifle, and they'll say, oh, my gosh, I'm going to bleed out. And they start slapping tourniquets on And I'm like, whoa, whoa, calm down, calm down. No, let me rephrase that. You're, you're doing what I told you to. So as an instructor, i got to be careful sometimes what I say. But uh, I said, okay, well, from now on, if it's moderate to severe bleeding, sure, put a tourniquet on. Uh, if you, if it, you deem it necessary after you've had some training, you understand why what the goal of that of that uh, tourniquet is, and uh, put it on there. Or if you think, hey, I think I can control it with just a pressure dressing, then sure, use you know an Elias or yeah, Israeli or whatever you've got. You know H and H, they they make some good stuff. So whatever your, um, you know, a pressure dressing may be is all all that you need. You know, it may, doesn't always require a tourniquet, but like I said, if it's an amputation um, from you know, above the knee or something, or even an amputation period, arm or leg. Yeah, I'd, I'm not going to hesitate to throw a tourniquet on there um, and do it fast. I mean, we've only got about five and a half to 
six liters of blood in, in the human body. Every quote-unquote body is a little different, but about five and a half to six liters. We start losing, you know, two and three liters of blood. Uh, that's pretty significant. Um, that's That makes the medic's job and the EMTs and paramedics out there makes their job a lot harder to deal, you know, to deal with a patient that, well, they, they bled out. I don't, I can't, I can't give them so much IV fluid. I can't push so much whole blood or platelets or whatever. You know, I just, it, the body will only take and absorb so much new stuff and only make right, new, right. new blood so quickly. Um, but, yeah, so there's the right. But you also brought up a really good point with the, with your instruction that you were giving, and I still think that that's an absolutely legitimate line of instruction because uh, in – uh, initially, you know, 35 years ago, uh, when I was in, they were tourniquet was the last thing you applied. They don't want you messing with a tourniquet. They don't want you putting it on, except in the last emergency case situation. And then when you did, you know, everything had to be, uh, you, you, everything had to be documented. You had to put the T on the forehead, the time, everything else. Everything had to be, uh, because I'm sure they did. They, they just thought about, they thought about the situation different. Than what they do now. They and now, uh, I think that finally the understanding has caught up because even at the time, uh, I didn't agree with that because I thought, look, guys, we can we can take we can take the tourniquet off in just a few minutes after we put it on if it's if it's not needed or something like that. We can take it right back off. It's not like they're not going to lose their arm or their leg because they've had a tourniquet on for three minutes. But but it, Correct, if they yeah, lose yeah, three yeah, minutes worth of blood, then we're going to be in trouble. So, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we yeah. can leave tourniquets on. Uh, the doctrine right now, they're, what they're saying is that uh, we leave tourniquets on for up to six to eight hours. Um, so a lot of people, you know, like, I agree that you can always, you know, in some of our other classes, I'll start teaching people, hey, uh, if you've got the tourniquet, if you're outside of, a, there's no hospital or it's some kind of natural disaster, uh, which is always funny because everybody thinks, Oh, it has to be you know apocalyptic, uh, the zombies. And I'm like, no, uh, we've had two here in the past couple of years in D- Dallas Fort Worth, uh, freezing storms, ice storms. You know, uh, we put two inches of uh, two inches of ice came down on the ground, and we were the whole you know Dallas County, the city of Dallas shut down. You know, yeah, uh, for two inches yeah. of ice, uh, and that was just this December, November or something. But uh, it's on there for six hours. Sure, if you can, if you slap a tourniquet on, you put a tre- pressure dressing on it, and then you realize, hey, okay, it's pretty controlled. Um, if you've checked your, you know, your patient is, you know, as far as the at the medic level, the EMTs, paramedics, hey, if their patient is viable and their vitals are all stable, uh, we teach the medics, hey, yeah, you can if you've got a stable patient and you think you can slowly start undoing that tourniquet if you want. It's situation dependent. Uh, then that's up to the medic, the on-site medic. Uh, for civilians and layperson, I tend to say, "Hey guys, just leave it on there. Let the paramedics, on, yeah. the EMTs, just let them know that it's worth the, you know you checking and learning about. You know, yes, you should learn about blood pressures and pulses and how they all go together and respiratory rate and skin temperature and you know everything. But uh, that's a lot for the layperson to understand. What all we're trying to do is not be the medic, but just what do you do? The medics get there. Well, until the medics get here, I just got to keep all the blood in the body. Cool. So trying to get right, pressure right. dressings on. And we're good to go. Because we were told at the time, too, that pretty much the same thing. They said, once the tourniquet comes on, uh, once it's on there and you got it marked up and stuff, it stays on, only the doctor uh, is allowed to remove it. 
uh, you know, or, sure, or sure. basically it was once you once it goes on, you guys keep your paws off it. Nobody touches it again until until somebody who's much smarter than you does. And uh, so that was just a that was just the rule way back then. But like I, like you were saying earlier, which I like I I told you that I, I completely agree with is if there is a lot of blood, uh, then let's let's we'll start with the tourniquet, get it going, and and yeah. then work from there because. Because if it is just a scrape, or you know, if it is just a, uh, a superficial with a lot of uh, non-arterial blood or something like that, then uh, then you can you can reassess it or you can take a look at it. But even then, uh, I think one of the things that they were that, that they were mainly worried about was people putting on tourniquets on on limbs that that didn't need it, and then uh, and then there being a long uh, a long time between when the tourniquet was applied and when they would be seen and you causing damage uh by cutting off the blood flow to the uh to the rest of the limb. So like I said that was the that was the old school but there's so much uh and it, like you said in the last my gosh man it, as horrible as war is that it it certainly brings in the knowledge for the medical community because Instead of having, uh, uh, you know, a couple of uh, hundred patients with the same kind of uh, uh, terrible damage in the course of a year, you get 10,000 of them. So you you learn very quickly what does and does not work. And unfortunately, a lot of people, like you said, a lot of people pay the price for the experimentation. But, uh, but down the road, a lot of people are going to benefit from it. But... Absolutely. We've certainly a learned a lot in the last 10 years. Yeah, a prime example is uh, just look at the number of, uh, you know, man, it gives me chills. I got chills going to my spine and my back about it to think about the, the, the number of amputees that we have and the, these, these soldiers and these absolute just rock and rolling, you know, people, you know, Americans, these warriors – that are amputees, that if we, they did not have those tourniquets and those hemostatic agents and those pressure dressings, even the pressure dressing, what you and I were talking about earlier, uh, they've changed night and day. You know, from what you and I were issued, the little the, the GI little uh, OD green wrap in the plastic wrapper, the, the, the look like the cheesecloth, you know, the green cheesecloth first aid dressing, right, right. versus what the pressure dressings and the kits that the soldiers are carrying now, uh, I mean, it would have blown our mind. You know, we were just like, wow, right. we wouldn't have ever thought of that. No, you wouldn't have. But the, the number of amputees versus the people that were killed and say, and I don't want to compare apples and oranges here, Vietnam. Well, yeah, we had a lot of people amputate, amputees in Vietnam, but yet people were bleeding out and dying there because we didn't have yeah. today's technology. We didn't have yeah. the stuff we have today to save all those lives, where as of, you know, 30, 40 years ago, these people would have been dying. In fact, in 2002, when I got out, sure, not to, you know, I thought I was, you know, I was very confident as a as a combat medic. Uh, I had two deployments to the Balkans under my belt, and at that time, that was, you know, not a lot of uh, regular army was deploying around the world. You know, yeah, there was some special forces and other units and stuff uh, doing humanitarian missions and whatnot, but for the most part, there wasn't a big, huge war going on. It wasn't like, you know, post 9-11. Uh, and, uh, in 2002, I was lucky enough, fortunate enough to, um, attend a, a live tissue lab. And that was, you know, 
so educational. I thought, wow, I'm going to, you know, it was such an honor to go as a regular Army guy and just a regular dude. And, uh, but the stuff that we were taught during some of those training classes were so advanced then in 2002 or 2001, we were like, wow, this is something that surgeons only get to do in operating rooms, but we're learning how to do it on the, you know, out in the street or out in the, on the field, uh, you know, chest tubes and they call it a venous cut downs. And if anybody's listening, the listeners are like, oh, I remember the venous cut downs. Yeah. They, that's technically, uh, archaic medicine today, you know, but at the time, right. venous cut down was a way of getting an IV started. Basically I filleted the skin open with a scalpel and surgically insert the IV catheter into the vein. And today's technology that I can drill, I'll drill into your bone, into your, into uh, you know, an IO and interosseous, and uh, or stabbing the sternum with the with a needle, and I'll have the same effect, uh, twice as quick and without near the risk. Uh, and I mean, I don't even think they teach penis you know, cut downs anymore anywhere, and it's just so archaic. But that was 2002. So if you were to take me in 2002 and throw me in the battlefield today, using only the technology and the, and the training I had then, I promise you, I'd be killing soldiers left and right as a medic. They'd be dying on me left and right. Uh, if, you know, I can't imagine it's a nightmare. It truly would be a nightmare. But uh, today, you know, just what we've learned so far, it's some really awesome medicine, and it changes by the minute. It really is uh, just keeps changing and changing by the minute and advancing. Um, the and, and I. And that's kind of, I guess, what I'm getting at was the improvise we were talking about. And, yes, there is a time and place for improvise. So I, don't, I didn't mean to bash anybody about, hey, improvised medicine doesn't work. It does. But, uh, you know, there's, well, there's definitely the, a time and place. Thing is we're, 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 I understand exactly what you're saying because you're talking uh, from the aspect of uh, Camp Coffee, post-arm medics, who uh, I doubt you're gonna, we're going to find you any place that you don't have your med bag on you or in your vehicle, you know, in a couple of minutes away, whatever, and you're going to have the right stuff. You're going to apply it uh, using the knowledge that you have, and, and I understand that, and from the aspect of the fact that, that you're a instructor and you're a great instructor and you want people to realize that they need to they need to use the right gear for the right job, et cetera, and, then that, and you're absolutely 100% right. And and I would agree with that because, uh, man, it only takes uh, a little bit of time, uh, a little bit of knowledge, and you can even get it free in a lot of cases uh, in order to get yourself the, the the training to at least do things like uh, like CPR and stuff like that. Uh, uh, the number of people who die every year because the people standing there watching them die don't know how to do CPR is just is huge. People that people that could go on to live, but they don't because the people that are standing there say, "Well, I really don't know how to do that, so you're just gonna have to die." Uh, Any <laughs> instruction? Don't to laugh at that. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, man. It's it's uh, uh, they don't want to get involved. They're afraid they're gonna do something wrong. I mean, we've even American Heart Association has even had to change uh, a couple of years ago change their curriculum and how they teach. And as us as American Heart instructors, we had to you know, come up with a whole other way of teaching and different curriculum just because of those numbers were so staggering. People were like, wow, the, the average 
CPR, you know, once a year, once every couple of years uh, student really is still hesitant or still hesitating or doesn't know what to do or the layperson that's never been exposed to it, they don't know what to do. Um, thank, thank goodness we've come so far with uh, automated external defibrillators. And I'll tell you right now, I mean, it's yes, CPR does work, but if somebody has a heart attack, get the AED. Learn how to use those automated external defibrillators. Those things are what's saving lives. Um, you know, it's, it's CPR, chest compressions, and work, but you're right. Just It starts, starts with a simple CPR class. You'll learn even how to do patient assessment, which is huge, you know, uh, and just a little bit of patient assessment, and you'll learn, oh, I've got to keep three things going with a patient, and if I can maintain those three, I've got a viable patient for the medics, you know, uh, that whole you know, circulation, right. airway, and breathing thing. Right, but there's also there is also something to be said for uh, provided uh, stuff because uh, because a lot of folks don't have stuff handy or they can't get to it or they uh, or whatever. And what I'm talking about is stuff like uh, uh, because I've done this quite a few times is uh, to temporarily set a break in a leg or arm with uh, uh, with newspaper. You know, taking a you know a, a a fresh newspaper and uh, rolling it up, uh, you know, around the break and taping it in place to keep uh, you know, to restrict movement uh, of an arm break. Uh, I used uh, chicken wire uh, one time to uh, to do a uh, a leg break, and that was because it was the only thing that was there. And I just took the chicken wire and 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 folded it up flat uh, four or five times until I had a, a really thick. Uh, you know, wad of the chicken wire flat, and then uh, made it into like a the big shape of a C, and uh, you know, put a T-shirt over it to keep it from scratching the person, and then uh, and then use duct tape to duct tape you know inside the the chicken wire just to keep it from moving until they could put it in the back of the truck and get into the hospital. Uh, uh, things like that. Uh, things like. Uh, uh, a lot of people are in their preps, you know, they I'll tell them, you know, how's your medical prep and stuff like that going there. Well, I got uh, I got two Israeli bandages and stuff like that, and and I'll say, well, that's good. I said, but here's my, here's my problem with that. Uh, even one uh, even one uh, superficial wound, you know, a wound that would normally, if you were if you got it. You'd need to go to the hospital and get maybe six, seven, eight stitches, you know, on your leg or something. Uh, in a situation where you couldn't go to the doctor or something, uh, you, you would need to put a bandage on that, and you would really you'd need to change that bandage, uh, depending on the situation, at least once a day. And you're not going to be able to do that with those 20-buck uh, Israeli bandages. You're going to need something else. That means... Either have to buy, uh, you know, some gauze pads that you can have, Andy, or one of the things that I bought, and I and that's because I talked to the the head of the uh, the ER at a major hospital locally here, and uh, she'd had experience with this, and that is the uh, the Kotex, the feminine hygiene napkins. You can buy a a bundle of. Forty-eight of those for three dollars and fifty cents from the dollar store, and uh, and they're packed by mechanical devices, not touched by human hands. So, for all intents and purposes, the uh, she said the hospitals consider them to be sterile. I mean, certainly not as much as as some 
uh, supervised sterile facility. But they said they consider them to be pretty sterile. So for three and a half bucks, you can get 48 of those. And uh, and those work really awfully good in, you know, absorbing blood and helping to staunch the the flow of blood and stuff like that. So so there to, are to places extent, that, yeah. that improvise, yeah. improvised stuff can, can be used. Uh, true. Yeah, there, there is, like you said, it's, hey, we, we've got the, the the quality stuff. I don't call it expensive. I mean, it's really dressing six bucks. If it's a six-inch dressing, it's probably seven bucks, uh, depending on where you get it. But, uh, you know, so for seven bucks, you've got to pressure dressing and do like an Elias, uh, and not the brand name here or anything. But uh, from TAC Med Solutions, the Elias bandage, that's like six bandages, five bandages in one. And uh, sure, it's right. seven, eight bucks. But uh, you know, when we start talking about, well, now we've got to, you know, like you said, for your prep, what are we going to do when? Hey, it's going to take me about, you know, two or three days to get down the mountain or to get to the hospital because we're out here, you know, for whatever reason, natural disaster, have you, uh, what have you? Well, now I've got to worry about uh, changing out that dressing, and right. uh, that, and like you said, sure, I, I don't, I can see we're using. Feminine hygiene products for that, you know, maxi pads or something like that would be you could you could use. Uh, I definitely do not advocate people using tampons and maxi pads to to control <laughs> to severe bleeding. Uh, you know, I've I've spoke very I'm not going to say harshly about it, but uh, I think I've beaten that horse enough over the past this past year and a half uh, about using that. And people think, oh, that's a really good idea, and like you said, they're not sterile. Uh, they're not. They're never sterilized. They're aseptic techniques right. that they use to manufacture them. But uh, right. those things are not designed for major moderate ble- arterial bleeding. You know, everything. So right. it's for a woman's period. And not to go off on a rant about that, but no, uh, uh, menstrual cycle, you know, fluid. Uh, the, the fluid that's the uh, female, you know, discharge there, menstrual discharge is not arterial pressurized bleeding. They're not right. going right. to work. And there's, you know, absolutely no documented cases that I can find. I've had other colleagues, hey, find me the documented cases where tampons and maxi pads saved lives. And there's a couple of reasons we figured that they we're not going to find those. But uh, that's a whole other rant maybe for another show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can still use them. You can still use them for, like I said, for your part of your prep. Absolutely. You can get 50 of those things for 3 bucks, and maybe that's now it's not for controlling, you know, immediate life-threatening bleeding. Sure, you can use it to change out dressings and use it if you need to. If you ran out of four by fours or some other type of you know right. gauze, and, that, you got and that's that what I'm talking about for that because yeah. certainly you want to use the best possible whatever you have. And anytime I'm talking, anytime I'm talking about medicine or or improvised medicine, anything really at all that's coming from my lips, uh, I want to make sure that everybody listening and I put this in the, the disclaimer for the show. Everybody listening understands that <laughs> in nothing or nothing that I'm telling you. That is a substitute. I'm not a doctor. I'm not any type of a licensed caregiver. But so <laughs> there is nothing that I'm telling you that is that is meant to be a substitute for professional medical care, which I urge you uh, to seek at the uh, at the first possible opportunity in every single case. Let me just get that out of the way so that uh, people understand. And I'm not telling you. I don't want anybody to think or, or to tell the doctor that. Uh, that I told them to stick a tampon, uh, you know, in their uh, in their wound. bloody yeah. wound, yeah, uh, or anything like that. I, and I've heard people tell me the same thing. They said, uh, well, 
I've got some tampons in case I get a bullet wound, and I I can put that in there. I go, whoa, hold on, man. Don't ever be putting anything inside you that uh, that didn't come from a hospital or that they didn't put in you because that's one of the quickest ways you can kill yourself is to introduce something into into a deep wound like that. so, well, it's, uh, I mean, I know yeah, they're being it just won't stop the bleeding. They're just, I mean, that's not what they're designed for. You're kind of pissing in the wind. It's, it's not, it's not going to be enough. But uh, right. I agree. I'm just talking it's, about it for stuff like, uh, like once, uh, you know, if he's got something, if you have some kind of a wound or something that didn't require, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a tourniquet or something like that, but, uh, but did require a good, clean bandage. Uh, every single day, then, uh, uh, and if you don't have the money to to buy the uh, the large amounts of of gauze and stuff like that, I would still urge you to buy a large amount of gauze, and then that would be the first thing that you place directly against the wound to separate the wound from something like the uh, the feminine hygiene napkins, so that they're not in direct contact, if at all possible, because they are not sterilized as the as the uh, the gauze, surgical gauze is, but uh, but there but there are the but you can use them for for certain things, uh, and if you're on a budget, then it's better to have that than nothing. Uh, sure. I mean, if you know what you're doing, you can you could even uh, uh, if you had a pretty good dash on your on your arm or something, you could even use something like saran wrap and duct tape, you know, to 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 slow it down. And give you time to get somewhere. Uh, you know, there's there are things you can improvise, but I also I, I don't like uh, I guess I don't like to talk about it too much because I don't want to tell people this is a solution and and have them apply it or incorrectly and then uh, uh, and then want to come after me. So like I said, sure. anytime sure. I'm discussing anything, I want to make sure you guys know that uh, I'm just telling you stuff. That uh, I'm relating to you stuff that has been related to me, and in no case should be this be considered substitution for uh, for professional medical advice, which you should seek immediately for any illness or injury. I can't say that strongly enough. Uh, yeah, I, but uh, I, I also know that, uh, that plenty of folks and they'll learn that hopefully with the uh, with the training, and that's what I think. What what's so cool about your show is you advocate, hey, getting more education, getting more training whether it's medical or prepping or water purifying or whatever, you know, whatever you guys, that's what I think is kind of cool about the show is that, yeah, I, I haven't, you know, seen you or heard you come across saying, it's my way or the highway. It's I'm the subject matter expert. You know, it's, hey, we're sharing knowledge. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm about as far from an expert as you can get. Uh, the best I can hope <laughs> for is to re- relay the words of uh, of people who are much smarter than me. And you're right. I, uh, and I think the folks that are listening to this show could always tell you that I always advocate training above everything else. When somebody comes to me and says, "Hey, I've got uh, uh, I got an AR and a Glock and a shotgun. What should I get next?" And I say, "Well, uh, what's your level of uh, training with with any of those?" Uh, and they will relate it to me, and I say, "You know what? Any money that you have uh, available now." Would much better serve you by getting uh, classes with just those already. Get classes with those, 
before you consider purchasing anything else because you're, you're, you've got the basic stuff you need. Let's let's get you some instructions so that you can use it correctly because I don't care what firearm you have or how many of them you have. Without the knowledge to uh, to use those firearms correctly, then it really doesn't matter what you have. I mean, you could have a sharp stick. They're, it's going to kind of equal out that way. So uh, I always advocate uh, improving your your knowledge, getting training as one of the very first things uh, on the list of, of what folks should do. And uh, and certainly that applies to what we're talking about tonight, about getting, uh, uh, getting training in the use of the items that you would find in your your individual first aid kit. Because like we said earlier, that without... I don't care what you have in your kit. I mean, it, it doesn't matter if you have if you have a, if you've got a one of those uh, inflatable ambulances that you can pop out, hit the button, and then you'll have an ambulance that's filled to the deck with everything. <laughs> Unless you know how to use it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you have in there because uh, it's not going to do anybody any good. So I always uh, advocate, and I'm doing it right now too, is uh, that. Uh, that the very first thing you should seek is training. And when I when I was telling you about the folks uh, the folks dying because people didn't know the, at least even the basics of CPR, I mean I've I've seen that three or four times uh, over the last few years. I mean the person that uh, received the the injury uh, for all intents and purposes the only thing that had happened was that he'd got a good enough uh, he or and she in one case. They got a good enough knock that uh, that it caused their heart to stop beating for whatever reason. But they didn't have uh, they did not have any uh, any life threatening uh, or, or fatal injuries uh, that couldn't have been uh, overcome if somebody could have just uh, given them a little bit of help to get over that hump and get the heart pumping again. They would have made it. Uh, as, as, as far as what the surgeons or what the doctors and the, uh, said afterwards, uh, so uh, so just having the knowledge, and I know that uh, that they've gone now from uh, I don't know if this is what you were talking about a few minutes ago when you were talking about the uh, like the the change, the major uh, uh, game change in CPR training, but I know that they uh, they completely went away from uh, doing. Uh, uh, breathing, because they said that was keeping too many people from engaging in it, and uh, they thought they were just doing the compressions alone was going to be enough to get a lot of folks uh, over that hump without doing the breathing. Correct. It's uh, it's one of the biggest things. Yes, uh, you're correct. The, you know, I've asked my, you know, coordinators with American Heart to, hey, why the change? Not that I'm, you know, questioning them. Uh, I'm a full 110% supportive of American Heart Association. They're doing phenomenal work. Uh, and you're right. It, they say, well, we've got to change it because, one, uh, I always look at it and say, well, there's no such thing as bad troops, just really, really bad leaders. And I apply right. that to, you know, my students versus me as an instructor. It's like, hey, that puts a lot of pressure on me. No such thing as bad students. They didn't. They just did what they were trained to do. They were trained, and they sat in that class for, you know, 20 minutes, watched a VHS tape or a DVD for 15, 20 minutes, got up, and then, uh, quote-unquote, uh, demonstrated proficiency with uh, CPR. They kind of went through the motions, 
and they signed their card, and all 85 people in that classroom got their CPR that day. And uh, American Heart said, well, wait a minute, that's, we're, that's, not, that's not what we want to do. Um, so they've cracked down on their instructors. Uh, they, you know, they, they've really started, you know, cracking down on them and saying, hey, who's doing good teaching and good curriculum, you know, and teaching it the right way? Uh, also, they've changed up, well, just doing mouth-to-mouth, you know, with uh, all the different communicable diseases and viruses floating around. I mean, flu virus, good God. Uh, you know, just people not washing their hands, and that the flu virus is running rampant around, you know, different parts of the U.S. Uh, hepatitis, that's a big one that nobody wants to think about, you know, and everybody's worried about HIV or AIDS. Well, yes, we've had a lot of education and learning about those those two viruses, but or HIV, and we know that you're going to have to work to get it. Uh, but doing mouth-to-mouth, uh, that's a lot of mouth-to-mouth. But uh, they are hesitant. They're hesitant to do mouth-to-mouth because they look at a total stranger and uh, – you know, I've done it once. <laughs> as, a, as a young guy, uh, as a young man, I, I did mouth-to-mouth once, and a stranger doing CPR I thought I was going to be a hero, and uh, I just ended up getting a mouthful of their vomit. Uh, not to get too descriptive on the show. Oh, but, that's exactly what it, I was going to tell you. Is it? Is, uh, is I just the, kinda, I was like, well, I'll never do that again. And uh, yep, yep. And it's and they're hesitant. So they're hesitating to start doing CPR when, sure, the new curriculum says, hey, if you don't know, remember anything, just. Uh, pump on their chest as hard and as fast for as long as you can, you know. And I'm like, well, that's, that is a, that is an option. Uh, it's not bad. We can teach that, but let's teach them. Let's be, you know, better instructors. And, and so, again, training. And, hey, the teachers need it with the instructors. We need to go to training and learn how to be better teachers and teach this curriculum and hold our students and ourselves to a better standard. And I think that's what American Heart Association has done uh, since uh, 2011, 2010, They've done that, and it's uh, but so they've taken away having to do. Well, I don't remember which to do first. Do I do the head tilt, chin lift, or open the airway, or do I check a pulse, or what? Hey, right. they call it hands-on only CPR for a reason. Just start beating on the chest, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's going to be the that's going to be the most damaging uh, part of the situation. Usually, is is that blood not flowing. Uh, Anywhere in the body for for any uh, length of time, you know, even even a minute and a half, two minutes, it's you're reaching some uh, you're reaching some levels where the people aren't going to be able to recover, or if they do, they are they're yeah, not they're they're, they're not left like. there's not much left in there, you know. But true, uh, true. now I got one of the uh, I got one of those the early devices uh, early on because. Uh, I guess people. Uh, I hate to say this, but I, but it's it's a very common thing for a person that you're giving CPR to to throw up and uh, to eject stomach fluids and everything else into your mouth while you're doing it. Uh, you know when they first when they first start coming around. So that's a very common thing. And uh, you yeah, know, I got one of the consciousness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got one of the you know the one way valves and stuff so so that I could still do it because I know that it's important. Uh, like you said, that's what they're teaching now is is, is immediately you can get the get the heart you try and get the heart uh, to to con- continue to pump blood because that's that's what you're doing is you're acting as a live heart when you start the compressions and you're causing that blood to be pumped through it, and it's not it's not top quality blood. But there's still enough blood that has been oxygenated uh, in the body that if you can keep it moving for a little while, then you got a good chance of 
you know, uh, of 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 keeping them alive at least till somebody else can get there. And sure, with you sure, said, like you said, with the with the training, uh, with the training and with gear, and the 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 odds go up astronomically. You know, if you can, if just if you have a bag or somebody else has a bag, and they show up with that, and they can start bagging the person and and doing the compressions, and you're and you're way ahead then. But that's gonna have that's gonna have to be with the, the training. But let's talk about that for for just a minute because we're. Sure. Uh, we're gonna. I want you to come on the show again for it, and have, have a whole show where we talk about uh, uh, about Lone Star Medic and stuff. But let's talk about that for just a minute, because uh, you guys uh, are here. You're based here in Texas, but you go all around the country. And uh, correct. And I want people to to know how they can get a hold of you, and uh, how they can find out what you have available, and and how they could go about uh, getting you to 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 load up your team and come and visit them. So uh, start off real quick with uh, if they want to get, if they want to find out about you, they can go to your your webpage, which is Lone Star Medics, all one word dot com, and uh, and that's your homepage there. And they can start uh, finding out about the courses that you offer. What courses are you guys offering right now? Uh, right now, the the next one we've got on our uh, on the schedule is November. It's our Medic One, and uh, it's a two-day class. It's uh, geared for the layperson. Uh, we do have classes for healthcare providers, uh, EMTs, paramedics, doctors, and nurses, and whatnot, and PAs. And but uh, this one's geared for the layperson who has zero background and zero experience. They're like, hey, I'm here to learn how to save lives. How do I do it? Um, and it's a two-day class. And we cover everything from traumatic injuries, uh, stuff like talk about car wrecks, uh, baseball bats and gunshot wounds and uh, stabby things, stuff like that, held objects. Then we also talk about a little bit on the medical side and medical emergencies, uh, stuff like your stroke and diabetes and uh, allergic reactions, uh, heart attack. We actually cover American Heart Association's uh, adult, child, and infant CPR with an AED training in that class. We add that to it. and it's uh, the cool thing about the class is usually we try to have uh, some surprises installed for the students. The classes, all my classes across, it's my curriculum. Uh, it's not that I've invented the wheel. Like I said, I've definitely uh, stolen a lot of good information uh, from other people, and I give credit where it's due. But uh, I've written the curriculum so that way it's about 80%, 75 to 80% hands-on skills practice. So it's not a lot of just death by PowerPoint course. It's not two days of me of you watching a DVD. Uh, I think our out of twenty something classes, my entire PowerPoint presentation is about four slides, um, with one twenty seven second video. Uh, but it's a lot of hey, we talk about things. Um, then we're going to practice them, you know, down on the ground in the classroom, and then hey, we're going to go outside and run scenarios on them. And I've learned that adults we kind of seem to learn more by doing, uh, you know, which sure there's different adult learning styles. But a lot of the students for this type of subject and material were really catching on a lot quicker with scenario-based training. So we've, uh, we'll go wherever we're at. We'll try to have uh, role players. And uh, if it's here locally in Dallas-Worth, we usually go to one of the you know, local universities or colleges and hire a couple of college kids or something. Uh, or I'll call up you know, some, some veteran buddies of mine and say, hey, uh, they, and uh, I need some help. And they'll get all moulaged up, and we'll squirt fake blood out at each other and They'll throw up throw up cans of soup on on you and stuff, and so it's kind of a 
kind of a messy uh, afternoon, but uh, the students have all said, I learn more doing this stuff than just sitting here reading about it. And I said, well, of course. But uh, the Medic 1 class, it's, you know, uh, probably our most common and most popular course out of five years. Uh, we also have uh, CareFlight. Um, on occasion, we can get CareFlight out. The Air Ambulance Service out of the North Texas here, they've been very gracious and helped us out and uh, providing a landing zone course. Uh, they've got a uh, safety a landing zone safety class that uh, they, they offer, and we'll invite local public safety out for that portion, and whether it's law enforcement, fire departments, and the ambulance services, and because uh, they get CE hours out of it, so it's kind of a good thing. It's uh, a very cool class, and uh, civilians, the layperson realizes that hey, we we can actually utilize this, you know, resource of an air ambulance. Uh, just because you call doesn't mean they'll fly. I mean, there's weather and other missions pertaining, but uh, we teach the students, hey, how do you set up a proper landing zone? So if you are out there in, you know, this is Texas. If you're out there at uh, the family, you know, deer lease or ranch for the weekend and uh, you're out there in the country, well, it may take an ambulance 45 minutes to an hour to get to you on the ground. But if it's uh, something right, where you right. get called and set up an LD, well, it may take you three minutes to get a helicopter. You know, so how do we set that up? But uh, that's the main course where we've got coming up. We've got a lot of other different new stuff for 2015. Uh, our uh, field and tactical medical training conference uh, is going to happen again. We had that this year back in March. That was a huge success. Uh, we had over 100-something people as attendees. Uh, looks like we're going to have this year, I'm going to guess, uh, we're, we're over 23 instructors right now, different instructors coming together for the training conference. Uh, but they can see more about that uh, on the website at LoneStarMedics.com under the conference uh, webpage. So, uh, but there's a, there's a lot more coming up for 2015. We're inviting some new people down. Uh, we've got, uh, so we're, we're hopefully going to, get those classes in too because we're students too you know I'm very much a student myself uh, I try to take as many more you know medical and uh, defensive techniques classes and different you know all my colleagues I try to go and take their classes so I can learn but because uh, I'm very much a student first before I am a teacher of anything right right and that's how you should be I don't care <laughs> and most of the folks that I talk to Folks like you and uh, and a lot of other people I've talked to uh, have always told me they say don't don't write expert next to my name. Uh, you can write student or you know instructor uh, instructor in training. But uh, uh, most of the folks that are really good at what they do, legitimate, are always 100% uh, students. They're always on a quest uh, to learn more, to make themselves better, to improve their knowledge and their abilities to provide uh, instruction or service to uh, uh, to their community, to their peers and stuff like that. And that's what, uh, that's what we should all be doing. And uh, I wish I could make it to that, to the Dallas uh, event. Now, in addition to the, uh, to that course, which is a great course, uh, you guys also have, uh, you've got tons of, of other courses. You've got the, uh, the Hunter's Field Medicine course. You've got the Mommy Medics course, Field and Tactical Med Lab. And then you've got a ton of tactical medicine courses, uh, Dynamic Absolutely. Control, Dynamic SWAT. Tell us a little bit about those. Uh, well, the, the, we've got, uh, you know, uh, two or three classes, law enforcement specifically. 
uh, for those men and women out there in law enforcement. Uh, says again, it's just kind of like what we talked about. Your training should also be like how you're looking at your, your IFAC. What's your mission? What's your environment? How many people are you responsible for? And uh, what's your level of training? Well, that kind of goes hand in hand, and I hate to keep resorting back to that. Uh, but same thing. So we've got to, depending on who you are, what you want to learn, we've got something that's applicable for you. And that's my key word there for the different classes. We've got 20-something classes. Uh, some we don't even have up on the website yet, we're, but they're still new. Uh, I want to make sure people take the applicable class, meaning they have learned what's applicable to them, their mission, their daily day, day in, day out activities, uh, you know, so some of the tactical medical classes, sure, uh, Medicine X, for example. Um, Medicine X is a two-day class as well. We've got one-day classes, Dynamic First Aid. That's a real popular one. Uh, but uh, Medicine X is the tactical medical one. And the cool thing about that is it's, we utilize live firearms or live fire scenarios for the, for the training scenarios. Now, we don't obviously put live real role players downrange, but uh, we've got, you know, rescue randies and mannequins and stuff that we put down range. And the idea is think of it as a, uh, Hey, if I'm involved um, as a law enforcement officer or, uh, you know, a CHL holder and um, some some act of violence has happened, whether it's a stabbing or shooting, or I'm in the middle of a gunfight. Well, a gunfight's a fight. The key word there being fight. And I challenge anybody to show me a fight where only one person got hurt. (laughs) Right. You know, watch, watch, What's you in any you know UFC MMA fight or you know and uh, bout and you'll realize wow everybody's getting punched everybody's bleeding everybody's got you know been beat up well that's a fight uh, now sure there's not every gunfight there's everybody gets shot but the medicine X class we show you and we teach people hey not only how uh, to identify and treat these injuries involved with uh, violent altercations but more importantly when do we treat these things and when do we identify them. Uh, because there's that, it's a little bit different than, say, Medic 1, where, you know, the whole, you know, we go through certain steps. Well, now certain those, those certain steps uh, in Medic 1 now change when we go to Medicine X. If it's a, you know, if there's bad guys shooting at us, well, then that kind of changes how we uh, do some things. You know, we may not put tourniquets on right now. We may do, uh, you know, neutralize the bad guys first and do some drags and carries behind cover concealment and then start putting on tourniquets or what have you. You know, then putting on those chest seals. Uh, you know, whatever the case may be. But uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, everybody, we've had the the quote I, I love using is from a student here last year uh, from down there in uh, the Bastrop area. Uh, Carl Wren and uh, KR Training was hosting this, and one of the students came and said, uh, you know, Caleb, this was a, uh, I've taken a lot of classes, but this was by far, this was like a training orgasm. <laughs> he said, because your scenario is involving and I said, okay, um, that's cool, I think. Explain, real quick, explain. He said, well, because I'm getting to practice, uh, we're running some of these scenarios in two- and four-man teams, so I'm getting used. I've never been able to run a, a course of fire. And say a course of fire scenario would be like running an IPSIC or IDPA or a three-gun stage, uh, but with the difference is you've got to fight your way to uh, your downed your, your buddy or a downed family member uh, and still not get yourself shot or injured. But uh, they said, I get to test my marksmanship, my firearms equipment, the way I've set up my EDC or my, my holster, my, the way I carry magazines, my spare mags. Uh, I've learned how to, you know, my communication with other people, my team communication. 
all wrapped around the medical aspect. And uh, they said, so I'm actually, during one scenario, I'm having to practice team communication. I'm having to practice of what my equipment works and doesn't work. I'm finding out, too, hey, uh, did I put the tourniquet on right? And all wrapped around the medical training. So there's a lot of bang for the buck during those scenarios. And we've got, you know, uh, I think for 2015, we're actually going to try to do some force-on-force classes with it, maybe. Uh, And uh, people learned a lot. If you haven't taken a force-on-force class from somebody, highly recommend it. It is an (laughs) eye-opener. But, you know, medicine changes a little bit in the tactical environment. Uh, We've got classes for uh, SWAT medics, for EMTs and paramedics and healthcare providers that are working on SWAT teams and stuff like that. Uh, we've got classes like that, uh, and uh, like the mommy medics, you mentioned that. I never thought in a million years that my training in the military would take me to teach a room full of moms and grandmas only, but uh, for a two-hour class, that's, that's always been kind of a crowd pleaser. Um, new moms and new grandmas, it's only, they're only ones allowed in. We talk about pediatric emergencies. What, what do we see with kids? You know, what, what are they, you know, choking hazards or sticking their fingers in light sockets or, you know... Uh, you know, if they have uh, febrile seizures and that they get sick or, you know, what kind of stuff trouble they get into, you know, poisons and stuff like that. So we kind of run the whole gambit to answer your question. Yeah, we do have several different courses. Uh, my, my suggestion to folks is to read through them, figure out which one fits your, uh, your day-in, day-out activities, and make sure it's applicable to you guys. Right. And... Uh... You know, you you mentioned uh, you were talking about doing the uh, medicine X, and uh, and I was trying to to uh, I was trying to look up something real quickly when uh, while you were talking about that, and because I'd read uh, I was reading uh, I thought it was in the Marine Corps rules for gunfighting, which is a great thing uh, to uh, to read because it's a very uh, very relevant. Uh, uh, list of uh, rules for gunfighting. Uh, it's not in there, but uh, but there is a uh, in one of the the rules for gunfighting. And I thought that I thought it was in there. Maybe somebody else added it in one of theirs. <laughs> but uh, uh, there was a line that says, "Look, this is not the this isn't the movies. Uh, you know, if you get shot uh, and you're in the middle of a gunfight, you can't stop." Uh, you've got to keep. You've got to continue on with what you're doing, and you, know, you can't. You can't just uh, fold up and go down because uh, that could uh, that could cause even more damage to you or your group. So that that's kind of an important uh, important aspect of that. And you and I were talking about this uh, a couple of days ago when we were talking about an event that we have coming up, the the zombie run, and it was one of the. Uh, I, I was trying to figure out how to enter in some extra stuff into it, which was, uh, you know, trying to move an injured person while returning fire and stuff. And, and I, I didn't like what it, the way it was working out. And of course, you brought up a really relevant point, which was that. Uh, and I was talking about that with the guys today because we we're still trying to work something out. But the thing is, is like if I'm if I'm trying to move uh, my buddy. Uh, and we're in contact and we start receiving fire, then my my main goal at that point is I can't I can't think about him at that point. I've got to think about me because then if I go down there's nobody left to take care of either one of us. And uh so moving somebody 
under fire, of course, is a lot different. And this is one of the things that you guys talk about in your medicine X class, and uh, you certainly go through it in depth. And uh, uh, I just couldn't figure out where the where the line that I saw was, but it it was reading something like this. And in Hollywood, you know, if you if you catch a round, you're going to have to continue fighting. And I I haven't seen the movie yet uh, with uh, uh, Marcus Trell, but I remember reading it back in the book about how. Uh, you know, at the uh, in the battle, they'd all been shot at least once, and uh, and then made it to the bottom of the, the ravine by jumping off a cliff. And uh, the one guy comes up there at the end. He goes, "I've been shot." And uh, and one of the other guys said to him, "Yeah, you know, we, we've all been shot. So you know, can you still fight?" And the guy's like, "Yeah, I can still fight." And he said, "Well, that's what we got to do right now. We got to fight." So, yeah. It is, we say tactical medicine, well, and I always tell folks, well, tactics came first in the word, in that phrase. Right, uh, right. You know, there's a, they, they call it the uh, the combat medic proverb, at least, I don't know, I read this back in 2005 or somewhere, uh, that some of the combat medics and were Navy corpsmen or whoever working with the Marines, they said, uh, I, I want to get it right for the listeners, they said uh, the most effective uh Oh, give me a second. Give me one second. They said the most effective, uh, the most effective medicine in combat is superior firepower. Right, right. And I and I had to think about that. I and I said, okay, so the most effective medicine in combat is superior firepower. And I had to take that home and wrap my brain around that. I was like, what are they talking about there? And I thought, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, if we're getting shot at, I don't need to be dragging my buddy back. Um, you know, I need to be thinking my priority now become, well, bad. <laughs> stop, you know, stop those threats first because they're more bullet holes in people and things, and we don't need that. So how do we how do we, how do do we we stop that? Well, we put more bullet holes in them mostly first. Uh-huh. Easier said than done. But, yeah, I don't need to worry about dragging my buddy, but it's your buddy. Leave no man behind. Well, that includes my butt. <laughs> right, right. You know, I don't want to be left behind either, but if I – if I start dragging you down, uh, then we're going to both lose. Um, so we want to lose, we're going to lose big. So absolutely, yeah, the, the tactics, you know, that's the training, that whole mindset, you know. it's uh, Right, and that's what, one of the things we were working on, to, working on today is we were doing some other, uh, some other shooting training, uh, and we're actually shooting, like, we're developing a station and, and shooting it, but... But we were also working on that, and we said, well, basically, there's nothing unless there's unless there's a whole bunch of us. There's nothing else I can do, but but stop everything else I'm doing and concentrate exclusively on returning fire and eliminating the threat before I can do anything else, no matter what your situation is. And uh, and I would expect you to do the same for me because I'm depending on you to save me, and you're not going to save me if you catch a few rounds. You're not going to be able to. So you've got you to make sure you're doing everything to save uh, yourself so that you can continue to treat. And I've told that to people before when the, the same kind of advice when they wanted to take my kids somewhere. I said, okay, you're wearing your seatbelt, right? They go, well, I don't really believe in the seatbelt. I, mean, I don't care if you do or not. I don't care if you're injured or not or killed or not. It's not my... It's not my, my my worry. I said, but while you're driving my kids, you're going to wear a seatbelt because I need you to be able to survive the incident and apply uh, first aid 
to them or get them treatment. So you need to you you need to make it as survivable for yourself as possible when you're carrying my kids with you. So it's the same the same tenet, which is you've got to you have to survive in order to uh, in order to provide the the first aid uh, later. So so that's a that's a very important part of it. Well, we're we're coming to uh, we're coming up to the end of this, so let's let's make a quick circle back, and uh, so that I can be true to the the topic here, and and get you to uh, to give a uh, a quick rundown of like the uh, uh, of like the folks that have uh, you know the uh, the army issued now uh, uh, individual first aid kit that big square blocky bags they have. Uh, sure, sure, sure. What uh, uh, in the scope of what would fit into that? What would be your uh, uh, your suggestions, your your advice on what the person should have on them for their individual first aid kits? Well, it's you know, as far as items and you know specific gear, that's that's always a tough one. I always revert back to hey, mission, environment, number of people, and what you're trained at. Uh, right, for a general lay person who has a, who has the most minimal uh, training, who hasn't even been through sure, the, sure. Uh, the, the, the combat lifesavers type program. Sure, the first thing I would do is look at a hemorrhage control, meaning how do I control bleeding? Uh, you, you bleed out, we can't fix you. So the, I need to figure out what kind of tools do I got for that. So the first thing I'd pick up is uh, you know some type of tourniquet, a commercially made tourniquet. And I'm talking the the soft T wide from Tech Med Solutions or North American Rescue's got the cat, uh, the, you know one of those two tourniquets. Those are my two favorites. Uh, but you need a tourniquet. You need a, a really good solid pressure dressing, uh, and that could be something like the uh, Tech Med Solutions uh, Elias bandage, the Israeli bandage. H and H makes a great one. Um, but then uh, also the hemostatic agent. Um, my hemostatic agent of choice is uh, the Quick Lock Combat Gauze. Uh, Cellox has got a great pro, uh, product too, the, the Cellox Rapid. Uh, that's some really awesome, you know, hemostatic agent and product there. Uh, but you need to know how to use those. Those are not that everybody thinks, oh, I'll go to, you know, the store, the sporting goods store, buy some Quick Clot or Cellox, and I'm, I'm done. That's I can throw in a glove compartment, I'm done. No, you need to learn how to do that. But uh, also right. thoracic increase. You know, as far as airway and breathing, well, then if I've got bullet holes in my chest and my lungs, I need to plug those, seal those holes up really quick before I do need the needle, before I do need a chest tube. Granted, you're going to get a chest tube in the ER, but it's, uh, you know, we've got to be able to continue breathing in order to oxygenate the blood to the brain so the brain keeps functioning. So uh, those chest seals, you know, we're talking about the, the Russells or the Halos or the Hyphens and, uh, you know, uh, Sam Medical's got a couple cool ones too. I mean, there's just so many different ones out there. Uh, but definitely pick up a chest seal. Uh, a stack of the Ashermans that uh, yeah, the Ashermans that I certainly haven't used up. No, those those are those well, are good too. I mean, there's chest seals that are that don't have a valve and some that do have a one-way valve. Right, and and they, one of the good things about uh, most of the stuff that you listed is that right in the package, it has very uh, uh, very lucid instructions for their use. So even if you even if the person hadn't had any instruction in it, when you pop open that caddy or that Ashman, there are the directions right there. They're very simple. They're you know very easy to 
very easy to follow, hopefully. But uh, nothing is going to uh, replace training, but they do have uh, uh, the commercially made gear will have instructions with it for you to use. Now, I know that uh, uh, if you have training, I know that you could add in uh, uh, nasal pharyngeal airways, but if you don't know how to use it, it's, it's, there's no reason to have it on you because it's not going to do any good. Same thing with the uh, decompression pen. Uh, unless you know how to use it, please don't try and use it on me. I mean, I don't want to end up... Yeah, I, I, mean, want to, I don't want you to do that scene from, uh, what was it, that uh, Travolta? Uh, where they stab the, uh, uh, the 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 needle into the to the girl's heart who has the uh, oh, both fiction, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want I don't want that to be repeated, or you to think that that's how it how it works. So the, the training <laughs> is certainly <laughs> important. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the needle, the needle, the decompression needle, and the nasal trumpet. Even if you do have the training on that, I mean, that's a that's a medical procedure. Uh, th- those are right. uh, very advanced things, and uh, yeah, if, you, if the layperson, if you go out there on the streets and put that and put one of those things in someone's nose or dart someone's chest without having a medical license, uh, technically uh, that's a felony. You just practice it. Right. You're practicing medicine without a license, even if you do it correctly. Uh, so it's right. still good things to have in your kit, but uh, you know, but uh, and yeah, I see people, those are the, those are the things I've I would got... say that you need to have in there. Right, uh, and uh, I've got uh, I've got sutures in my kit, but I've but I've had training, but I still don't use it because I'll tell you right now that uh, that the stuff you see in the movies, the people sewing up wounds and stuff like that. Uh, if you're not a doctor, don't do it because uh, I've even had a couple of buddies of mine who are both doctors, brand new doctors. They were down on the beach in Galveston. One of them cut their foot really good, and they said, "Hey, we're doctors." Let's sew it up, and uh, they got a fish hook and some uh, monofilament, and they sewed it up, and he almost lost his uh, foot from it because I'm telling you, if you sew something up inside you that doesn't belong there, you're on a one-way ticket, man. So, so don't be, as I said earlier several times, don't be doing stuff you don't know how to do and don't use anything that we're telling you as a substitute for seeking professional certified uh, medical care. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's just uh, and a lot. If you go to training, it's funny. Oddly enough, students didn't realize like, well, I don't need to learn how to do sutures. I need to learn how to uh, clean that wound out really well and irrigate a wound. But more importantly, uh, right? Think, you know. But uh, yeah, wound management's a big thing. Uh, that's probably going to be one of the new classes for 2015. Uh, but uh, um, we'll go from there. All right. Well, listen. Uh... I really appreciate you coming on. I'd sure love to have you back uh a few more times. If you uh if you have the uh the time to come back, we'd sure love to have you come back. Uh we sure appreciate uh the time that you gave for tonight. And uh once again, guys, uh, I'll tell you that uh, there is no substitute for training. There absolutely no substitute. With training, you can you can you can get away a lot easier with improvising than you can uh, without training. Uh, you've certainly got to know what you're attempting to do before you can uh, before you can do it. So please seek out uh, seek out the training for yourself and for your group and 
And if you're here in Texas, why not uh, why not use uh, Caleb Coffee and Lone Star Medics? Once again, you can get there by going to LoneStarMedics.com. That's uh, all one word, lowercase, LoneStarMedics.com. Check out the courses that he has uh, offered there, and then uh, select one of those courses. Go and take it and see what you think, because uh, most folks uh, most folks are going to be very happy with these courses. And uh, and I don't know if you're anything like me. It's it's uh, it's almost like that uh, the old uh, I don't know the potato chip commercial is. You know you can't you can't take just one. Uh, so no, I uh, if you're here in Texas. Yeah, I encourage people to go and take other other classes. Take quote unquote my competitors; they're my buddies. Um, but there's still plenty of other, you know, guys and girls teaching this sort of stuff um, in different medicine. I mean, uh, just you know, there's uh, it doesn't stop with just me. It's not just the way Lone Star Medics teaches you and does it. No, go learn how to do the same thing and skin that cat three or four different ways. Right, and uh, and here's I'll give you guys a little warning order: is that uh, we've got. Uh, uh, I'm trying to work out uh, the courses now with uh, uh, Caleb for a uh, Lone Star Medics course uh, here at Battle Road uh, in the next uh, five or six months. And then we're also we're trying to work on a little something with, uh, with uh, Caleb Cossey and Lone Star Medics and uh, John Hurt from uh, Tier Group. And uh, if we can get all the details worked out and hammer something together, then uh, we're we're thinking about uh, some type of a uh, uh, patrolling techniques uh, and tactics along with uh, a medical. So uh, that is something that uh, if we can get it worked out, and I think we can, that will be something that will probably be happening in the next uh, five or six months as well. So keep your eyes open for that. Caleb, once again, thank you very much, uh, not just for coming on the show tonight and sharing your knowledge, but thank you for what you're doing uh, every day. Uh, God bless you guys. Hey, thank you guys for having us out here, man. I wish we had more time. Uh, if I give a quick shout-out, I've got to help go help with the rest of the folks up there. NorthTexasGivingDay.org. Uh, they're doing it's a charity drive today for until midnight. I'm going to go up there and help them out. But uh, they've got 1,600 North Texas nonprofits. Uh, two of them I'd like to shout-out to is HHC, which is Honor, Courage, Commitment, and uh, 22 Kill. They're... Uh, two really good veterans groups that are helping out veterans across the U.S. And uh, please, folks, just go check them out. It's been great being here on the show with you guys. I'm looking forward to the classes coming up next couple of months, man. All right, man. Thank you very much, Caleb. God bless and keep you guys, and uh, we'll see you again uh, in the next few months. Ah!